Are you currently avoiding money conversations with your partner or are these conversations difficult to have because they turn into an argument? Maybe they also remind you of what you see on those daytime talk shows like Dr. Phil or remember Jerry Springer? Take a moment to close your eyes and imagine having an easier money conversation with your partner instead. Sounds good, right? It's possible and you will learn how in this episode. Before we jump into today's content, keep your ears peeled for a unique reveal I'll be sharing midway through the show. It's something special just for you. Ready to transform your financial life with ease and confidence? Discover the Her Dinero Matters Money Planner, your ultimate digital tool for simplifying money management with its unique blend of psychological insights and practical budgeting tools. This planner is not just about tracking expenses, but about rewriting your money story. Whether you're aiming for big financial goals or everyday financial wellness, this planner is your personalized guide to simplify your money management and elevate your confidence. Download your copy today by visiting jenhemphill.com forward slash planner for more details and even get a sneak peek inside. Use the code Reina at checkout for 10% off. You are listening to Her Dinero Matters, the podcast helping Latinas have increased confidence and control over their finances. My name is Jen Hempel, and as an accredited financial counselor, my mission is to help you be more confident and simplify your finances so you can save more, get out of debt quicker, and build your wealth. Taboos around money are too real and even more real when you're faced with having a money conversation with your partner, let's say. That's when you realize how comfortable or uncomfortable you are with this topic. This is your host, Jen Hemphill, and I'm so thankful that you are here with me today. Our guests have had their share challenges talking about money with each other and found solutions and ways that not only gave them the ease in talking money, but also allowed them to have enriching money conversations. They want to share their experience to help others achieve the same freedom and knowing better ways of how to talk about money with your partner. I encourage you to listen to this episode with your partner and learn new ways to handle money conversations. Now about our guests, Julian and Kirsten Saunders, they're authors who have used frugal living, real estate, stock market investing, and their online business to build wealth and achieve financial independence. They paid off $200,000 in five years and are known for their blog, richandregular.com, and their video series, Money on the Table, as well as the Rich and Regular podcasts. We're going to get to know them in a moment, but if you want to share with us your tips on having better money conversations with your partner, later in this episode, I will share exactly how you can do that. Now, let's go and get started with the show and meet Julian and Kirsten. Bienvenidos, Julian and Kirsten. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Finally, I know we were talking before we started recording that my intentions have been to have you here for a long time, and I don't know what has happened, but here we are. Welcome. Thank we are you. So glad to be here. It's been a while since we've like seen you in person, so it's nice to kind of see you on video and hear your voice again. We're super yeah. excited. We won't tell the listeners where where I'm where I am at currently. We'll just keep that between <laughs> you. And we will. <laughs> Because you can see. Well, 
We always start off on this podcast with your money story. So I want to hear from each of you individually. Take us back in time. Maybe it was when you were little. Maybe it was a teenager. Maybe an experience, a conversation that real or a conversation, anything, a memory that you have had that really impacted you. That even till today it has an impact on you and how you perceive money. Who wants to take it away, Julian or Kirsten? I'll take it. I think the the first thought that came to mind, I feel like my money story is just like a never ending saga. <laughs> the first thought that came to mind is actually a quote that Julian told me. And it was back when I was traditionally employed in corporate and there was this job that I was interested in, but I was worried about applying for a number of reasons. It was in the wrong organization. It wasn't as sexy of a title as I wanted, but it came with this really big pay raise. And the reason this phrase sticks out to me is because when I was telling Julian and I was talking through all the overthinking in my head, he was like, the only reason you're hesitating is because you don't know what you would do with the money. And that was the first thing that kind of snapped me out of this pattern of overthinking and creating these limiting beliefs in my life around what money could do for me. And I think from that point on, it kind of changed the way that I thought about both earning income and investing. I want to dig into that a little bit, Kirsten. So you, so he said, well, you are so observant, observant partner right there. So he said that you wouldn't know what to do with that money. So let's peel back the layers a little bit on that. Up to that point, so you have the opportunity to earn more money, but then your hesitation was potentially that you didn't know what to do with that extra money. Why was that? Why do you think that was? Back then, I just didn't have a full understanding of what money could do for me. All the money that I was making at corporate was either going towards paying down debt or buying more things. I really hadn't gotten into the the phase where money is truly improving your quality of life. Money allows you to walk away from jobs you don't like. Money allows you to take vacations and upgrade your self-care or your your rituals that you have in your life. And I just hadn't gotten there yet. And so what Julian was challenging me to do was to have a bigger imagination. Like, why would you turn down an opportunity that someone has said you would be a good fit for, that you genuinely believe you might be a good fit for, simply because of this list of, you know, uh, surface level reasons that I had come up with in terms of my resume and my experience levels and my, you know, just the stuff that we do to talk ourselves out of good things. He really is the first person that kind of made me get out of my own way and said, like, imagine what you could do with the money. Imagine the kind of person you could be. Could you be more generous? Could you give to causes? Could you go places that you only see on TV and visit them on your own dime? And it was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I could do this. Like, this is silly. Why am I not applying for this job? And I did. I ended up getting the job and it changed the trajectory of my earning potential. And it's it's one of the best things that someone has ever said to me. I love it. I love a partner that challenged, challenges the way that you think yeah and and really up levels you love that and i'm wondering too if you could both go back in time kirsten a little bit was that a result the your thought process or you've never really thought of what you could do with some extra money the you know you haven't up to that point hadn't been able to imagine the possibilities what what do you think that was tied to is maybe as you when you grew up how you were brought up money wasn't being talked about what do you think that was tied to Yeah, it was definitely a result of what I had seen. Uh, My closest financial role models were my parents, and they were 
standard middle-class family. We, you know, had cars and lived in a house and ate out a couple of times a week. And they didn't really talk to us about investing, investing early and what the benefits of a high salary and an investment-minded approach could do for me in life. We just had not had those conversations. And so, yeah, I was just thinking like, well, I'm not ready to buy a house. I don't want that. I don't want a new car. I didn't want more purses and shoes. And like, that was the extent of like why I thought I didn't need to make more money. And I think, yeah, it was just definitely a result of what I had seen and what I hadn't heard or talked about from the adults in my life. And it's interesting because we're going to get to you, Julian, but it's interesting because one of the things that y'all do on your platform is help people create those money conversations, have those money conversations. I always find it fascinating when I do this interviews, how interrelated that money story is to today. So Julian, how about you? Take us back. It's so hard to think or to pinpoint any one story. I mean, I think the very first thing that comes to mind is just where I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York City in the 1980s, which if you're familiar with that time, I always kind of describe it as the old law and order. Like that's a, a very different sort of Brooklyn, New York than what exists today, which is all about craft cocktails and people on scooters. $12 ice cream. A scoop of ice cream for $20 <laughs> or something like that. I don't recognize the Brooklyn today. The Brooklyn I grew up in was, was rough. Um, it was uh, later on in my uh, adult life that I learned that that era would be called the crack era. And they're absolutely right because we were bombarded with it. We were surrounded by it. Um, it impacted you know, people that I knew in my life. Thankfully, no one in my direct family. And um, it was just a really, really tough time. Like we lived on the edge of poverty. Um, and so when I think about money, it was always just something that, um, in a, in a, especially from a standpoint of having it, it felt like something those people had. And by that, I mean, I go back to my childhood. I mean, growing up in Brooklyn, one of the fun things we would do was go hang out on the roofs of buildings. And you can see in New York, you can see Manhattan and you can see the skyline from there. And my mom worked in Manhattan. My dad worked in Manhattan. And every now and then I'd take the train to go there. That's where the money was. The money was not where I was, right? Where I was, was poor and trash and violence and all of those things. And so a lot of that really set the tone for how I viewed money and how I viewed opportunity. The good news is a lot of that motivated me to grow from that and to ensure that I never go back to it. But there were also some downsides to that too, because even when I had the money, um, it really took a, a long time and to some extent I'm still struggling with it to uh, shake that mentality, that poverty mindset uh, that oftentimes gets in the way of uh, the way that you view opportunities or even just enjoying what you already have, because it, it really forces you to be tight to the detriment of uh, sometimes of your own well-being and the relationships you have. Well, and when do you think was the time, the point in time that you shook that poverty mindset? Because it's obvious just based on this conversation, when you ask the question of Kirsten of what would, you know, what would you do with that money? You already were working on this. So when was that moment in time that you think you just were able to shake? And of course, we can't completely shake it off 100% because it's always a work in progress. But when was, when do you think that was? It was right around that same time because our origin story is sort of also our financial story. And so we met at work starting on the same team at the same uh, on the same day in, in orientation. And we started dating shortly thereafter. Uh, and that dating led to an argument. That argument led to a breakup. And then all of that led to this realization that we have a lot of emotional baggage as it respects to our financial uh, origin stories. And rather than sort of committing to that and saying, well, this is who I am. I'm never going to change. We were actually intrigued by that and say, wow, this is really interesting 
let's talk about this. Let's work on this together. And then let's also try to see like how many other people we know might be struggling with this, but actually aren't having these kinds of conversations. And lo and behold, this was a major issue that a lot of people were having in relationships where they were simply bypassing the uncomfortable financial conversation altogether, getting married and, and really not having those tough conversations until, you know, the rubber meets the road and it's time to sort of reveal what you have as you're, you know, preparing to buy a home or something like that. Uh, and so for me, I would say it, it started right when we met because that's when I started thinking about it. I was kind of forced to think about it and to heal from it. And uh, from there, I've just been working on it ever since and helping other people do the same. I love it. And so you've been able to improve your money conversations. It's become easier and in practice, you know, makes things a lot easier. What have you learned over time in your own conversations and helping others have better money conversations? What, what have you learned over time to share with us maybe a tip that would help us? Because if a couple is listening right now or a partner without their, their spouse is listening right now and they're wanting to have this money conversation and they just don't know where to start because they're they're scared. What would you say to that person? Yeah, I, I would honestly say you need to think of money as the third wheel in your relationship. There are very few conversations that are one time set it and forget it. And typically the ones that are come with like legal documents that you have to sign and make it official. But if you're dealing with a person who is growing and changing and there are new inputs and new unpredictables that come, come about, the conversation is ongoing. And it's one of the reasons why in our book, Cashing Out, we kind of split up the financial routines, if you'll call them that, into rules and rituals. The rules are the things that we have discovered that are kind of evergreen. That's the tried and true advice, like spend less than you make and make sure to calculate for inflation, but the rituals are meant to be revisited. They're meant to say, all right, last year we decided that Q2 was going to be our splurge quarter. Maybe this year it's Q4 and we really want to give the kids a nice Christmas, or you have been wanting to see this relative for a while. Let's try to make that the family vacation instead of the traditional, you know, we go on vacation four times a year. You have to keep having the same conversation. And I remember this being the most like revealing and frustrating for my personality type part of motherhood is how many times you have to repeat yourself. <laughs> like how many times you have to remind children to wash their hands, pick up their clothes, wipe the crumbs. do. But then there are these milestones where they finally get it. There's like, oh my gosh, he came home and he put his coat on the rack and yay. But it also with age comes a whole new set of routines and rituals that you got to teach them. Like don't forget them underarms. Don't forget <laughs> to lotion them ankles. <laughs> and so it really never stops. Like there are some parts of the routine and your financial regimen that are going to be baked in and they're going to be your you know habits and and the the foundation of your financial world but there are others that come up along the way and you might be ahead of your partner depending on how you grew up on this already being an ingrained habit in you so you just really got to get used to repeating yourself and then recognize that none of it is really gospel until you sign some paperwork and what what would you add on julian I would say, you know, I think a lot of people need to revisit, I would say, how they define a successful relationship, specifically as it relates to money. Because what I've heard more from than not from the people that we've met and spoken to and tried to help over the years is that, oh, we don't we don't argue about money. Right. And they, they throw that out there like immediately. But what you fine more than that I was like well you don't argue about money because you're not really talking about money you're not being very clear about money and so they use the absence of conflict as almost like a trophy 
to celebrate this this false sense of harmony that they have. And to Kirsten's point, you know, if you're not having conflicts with money, like it's it's first of all, having conflict with money is okay. It's natural. You're gonna have conflict whenever you're trying to grow or whenever something changes. And we're always growing and things are always changing. That's not to say that they have to be disrespectful or lead to a deterioration of the relationship. But I do think that a lot of people just get so comfortable uh, in the absence of argument and what we realize is that more often than not, it's a reflection of avoidance and not necessarily a reflection of them truly doing the work to get on the same page to make sure that there's clarity there with respect to the role that money plays in their relationship. That's so right on. And I think with avoidance, what comes into play is, like you said, we, we need to just talk about it, one. And we're going to have differing perspectives because we're different human beings. <laughs> We're different human beings and it's okay. And we just need to be able to, and you're with your partner for a reason. You have, you most likely have a good bit of the same values, I would hope, right? And so you would share, if you share those values, you just need to figure out what your visions are, how similar or how maybe a little different or where they're intertwined uh, to be able, because how can you plan something and really achieve it when you both don't know each other's visions, right? So I think it's just so important to to understand. And speaking of avoidance and speaking of not understanding each other's visions, what do you say to the person when they say to you, because I get this question a lot, how do you get your partner to be on the same page? Maybe one partner is really wanting to take care of the money and the other one is the avoider. Like I do want, don't want to see what's going on because I'm afraid, right? What would you say to that person? It's such an interesting question because in the question is this sense of control that you can make your partner be on the same page of you as you. And I think part of the answer is letting go of that idea that you can force an adult who has full autonomy and freedom to do what they want with their money to be on the same page as you and to think exactly like you do and to come out with the exact same operating manual that, you know, 30 or 40 years of life experience has given you. I think the new goal is to try to achieve some level of harmony. And so that may mean bucking conventional wisdom, like having all shared accounts, everything. You might need to carve out your own retirement fund. You might need to carve out your own checking account. You might need to create different rules and routines for you and your partner so that you can make sure that you're on the same page for small moments to make sure that the rent is paid, to make sure that you're hitting savings goals, to make sure that you have enough in the account to make sure that all of the basics are taken care of. But this idea that you're always going to agree on how to spend every dollar, is just another one of those unrealistic marital expectations that a lot of us create our own suffering in trying to maintain. No, I love that. I love that perspective. Julian, do you have anything to add? I do not. Uh, I agree with my wife. <laughs> See, this is, <laughs> I'm practicing in real time. <laughs> I think the downside of that marital expectation, especially for women or for the person who considers themselves to be more financially savvy or more financially literate, is that they find themselves being accommodating to the point where it builds resentment in the relationship. And then you talk it up to a money issue when really it's a communication issue, it's a boundary issue. Like, yes, there's money involved, but this is the result of trying to create an unrealistic expectation expectation 
in your dynamic to begin with versus here's what I believe. I am going to be able to exercise this belief with or without your income, right? Because we've decided that here's what the house requires and here's what's left over. I choose to do this with what's left over on my end. You can do whatever you want with what's left over on your end. That being an okay decision and an okay way to move forward just needs to be normalized in the context of modern marriages where both people bring something to the table. That hasn't always been the case. Women haven't always been able to work or have their own credit or their own bank accounts. And so it's a natural conflict that comes up as another person is able to contribute and make decisions about how they want to spend their money. I'm loving how you think. (laughs) Because (laughs) even though we both all do this, it's always interesting talking to another financial expert because the perception is slightly different in the explanation. And that's why I love having people like you on because I could tell someone uh, you should do this and that or, you know, to improve your finances. And you can tell them the same thing, but in a different way. And they just click with that versus what I say. (laughs) So I always love these conversations. I completely agree with you. And that's why in part, like I I really did just defer to agreeing with her because I think more often than not, that's what it boils down to. Like the reality is, and and it's the same is true when you're talking to your children, same is true when you're talking to your parents. You can say it as many times as you want, but it may just take one person just mentioning it and all of a sudden it'll click. It'll make sense. And that'll be the catalyst that moves them to action. That's just the reality of human, that's just human nature, right? And so I'm not saying give up, don't worry about it, but I do think that more often than not, you do more harm than good when you continue to push. I've been there. I've been the person that has pushed and pushed or to some cases been willing to just throw an entire relationship away because of a financial conflict. And I found that you, if you just pause for a second, you'll actually learn a little bit more about yourself as to why you're pushing so hard. What is it that you're afraid of? Was it, it, what is it that you are trying to avoid? And, and more often than not, you find that there's a lot of work that you need to do as well. Amen. Yes, yes, yes. Now, I, w- I mentioned earlier, and I know we've we've been talking about these convers- having these conversations. And when it comes to the com- our communities of color, Latino and African American communities, and all the <laughs> the communities of color, of course, in our communities, that taboo of talking money also exists. What have you seen? I would say that I see a lot of similarities in our communities, but would you agree in terms of the challenges of talking money or what would would you think are some differences or even, you know, what you see as similarities as well? Yeah, I wish I knew more about the intricacies of what happens in in the Latinx community. Um, I oftentimes defer to a lot of the relationships that I have with some of my friends and some of the shared struggles that we have, uh, particularly as it relates to being first-generation immigrants and being the first people who are uh, both upwardly mobile, but also have this deep, deep cultural and social sort of contractual obligation that we have to give back because we wouldn't be here without our parents. And that, more often than not, is such a huge point of stress, right? And so I think if there's anything that we share, it is that, is that same shared struggle in being torn between what to do with every incremental dollar. You Do you invest it in yourself? Do you invest it in your future? If you have children, do you invest it in your children and your children's future? Or do you pay it back, right? Like in African culture, there is this term called Sankofa, 
right? This idea that you cannot know where you are going until you make peace and look back, right? But I think when you look at that from an economic standpoint, it's very clear that there's a huge opportunity cost when we take our eyes off of our future, right? And so more often than not, we tend to kind of be torn and we're, we're stuck in this sense of paralysis. Um, and, and, and you've got pressure that comes from these social forces and idioms like, you know, uh, lift while you climb, you know, this idea that, hey, man, if you got there and you're making big money and you're doing big things, like, man, it's the least you could do. But I think we also owe it to ourselves to look at the data and then we look at it to, we owe it to ourselves to look at some of the other information sources out there that show that that doesn't quite work out for a lot of us, right? In fact, what that does is it perpetuates the cycle of poverty and struggle in our families. And so uh, there there are a lot, a lot of similarities there. I, I wish I had more relationships uh, and I wish there were more PhD students out there who could take a look at it because we really wanted to include some of that data and that research in our book, but we just couldn't find it. And when we started to connect the dots, we realized that, oh, well, kind of makes sense that there aren't that many of us that even make it that high up the ladder, but that's really where you need that information uh, to be broken down. You need more studies. You need more focus groups. We need a full-fledged analysis of all of those things. And I think from that comes proposals and insights uh, and things that might actually lead to some type of generational change. Absolutely. So if you are listening and you are wanting to become a PhD student or you love research, you know, here's an idea yeah. because it's needed. It's, it's needed. absolutely needed. Yeah. And, and, needed. I, and I'll also say this, there are likely tons of financial companies who would pick up that data and hire you in a heartbeat, right? And so it, I look, I, I'm not an expert in that field, but I know enough to know that there are several companies out there that are always looking for that information. And more often than not, it's not coming from doctors and researchers who are from those communities. It's They tend to be a team of other people who are kind of checking the box on behalf of some type of, you know, financial literacy or, you know, uh, Latin American History Month or Black History Month, those kinds of things. But we need that stuff more than just a couple times a year. It's really, really important. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that you all do that I love is you, when you have money conversations, you've done it in while well, cooking. <laughs> At the dinner table with your series what are the ways and I think that helps easing into the conversation what is another way that you would suggest that where you can set the weather environment or or the tone to ease these money conversations well I think the environment for sure plays a role right I mean, because the reality is financial conversations are taboo and as much as we recognize how destructive those can be I think there's also a bit of respect that needs to be there like like they're there for a reason and so the last thing you want to do is sort of rip that band-aid off right? and you're going to end up starting off on the wrong foot and so I think you know this sort of plays into the idea of power dynamics a little bit but I think one of the very first things that we should do is think about your setting think about where you are you invite someone into your space and then all of a sudden you start barking at them about your beliefs and the things that they're not doing you're likely not going to be happy with that outcome. Conversely, if you go to their place, then you're going to subject yourself to the power dynamic that they have, right? And so I think finding a nice neutral place, you know, go to a park, go to a library where you certainly can't yell, 
because you're respecting a different taboo, right? All of these little things that you can do, I think help set the tone. Uh, and then the last thing I think people should do whenever they're sort of preparing for those kind of breakthrough conversations is give everyone that is a part of that conversation enough time to prepare, both logistically, uh, emotionally. both emotionally, and even from a standpoint of being prepared to bring all of the information that they need to, to make that conversation uh, productive. We've done this probably more times than I think, you know, we've preferred to, but we learn so much about ourselves. We learn so much about other people in the process. And so those are a lot of things that I think would really, really help. As much as I would love to recommend that everyone just prepare a nice meal at home, that can be very stressful for people. But to your point, food, which is why we put it at the center of our video series, it does help to introduce new ideas uh, and it does make people happy, especially if the food tastes good. But if you can't do that, I think the next best thing is sort of leaving your respective home bases, finding a nice neutral place where everyone feels welcome and comfortable and respected and equally powerful and that they're equally prepared. And I think those are the things that help to encourage more productive financial conversations. Love it. Now, your book that you mentioned earlier, Cashing Out, Building by Walking Away, is, is a book that actually, I don't know if I shared you with you, my husband and I have been reading together. And, uh, and since we've met, I purposely, purposely, I said, go with me to your event where you have for your book. I like go with me because he's one you know he we we had I think we're able to have great money conversations and we do fine but I I want him to just kind of do do a little more and so I edged him I'm like come on it could be a you know we can go on a date and go to this and fortunately he's very supportive so we've we've been reading that book which I highly suggest um, you listening to get this book what would be like what is your the most proud part of that book or message of the book that you wrote together? Ooh, that's a good question that we I haven't been asked before. I think the proudest part for me is just people reading it with the intention that we wrote it in. It's it's one thing to write these words and feel very convicted having gone through the process and I'm on the other side of it, right? Like I've done the work and I'm writing to tell other people how I did it. It's another thing for those words to be received with the intent that I wrote them in, as a help, as a guide, as someone who believes in you. And I think when people write reviews or they tell us what the book has meant to them, they explain that. They say like, wow, no one's ever talked to me that way <laughs> and not in a bad way, but like no one's ever made me see myself in this way. No one's ever made me feel like this was possible with the tools that I have right now. I'm not asking you to go buy a multifamily house. I'm asking you to take advantage of your current, your current job and your current income and your current benefits and your current paycheck and figure out a way to make this work. And I think that makes me really proud that people feel empowered in the true sense of the word and not in like the, you know, the fake cheerleading sense of the word. Yeah. And I think for me, there, there are a lot of things that I'm proud of, but um, I, I think it was, I, I take great pride in being able to center what financial success looks and feels like. And I say that because I think most people who are engaged with personal finance content, especially today, uh, given the environment we're in with social media, I think there is certainly a tendency for people to look at it in a very glamorous, you know, 
or through from a very glamorous perspective. Uh, and we wrote about this in the book, uh, just around even when you think about what the word rich is, and then certainly if you Google it, there's a very clear image uh, that you see. And that tends to set the tone for what it means to live a rich life. And what we did was we really broke that down and kind of centered that more so in family and in creating the sort of world that you want to live in. And so uh, that being the reward, this idea of being able to spend more time with your partner, being able to be there for your elders as they get older and not have to, you know, worry about having to rush off and go to work, having to be there or, or being able to be there for your children whenever they need you throughout their lives. All of those things, being able to support causes that you think are underfunded are far better reasons for building wealth to me than the ability to buy nice things. Because you're all, there's always going to be something bigger. There's always going to be something nicer. Uh, and so I think we were uh, strategic in wanting to make sure that that's what we centered our, our book in, because I think that that's, I think that is what most people want. I just think that unfortunately that's not what they are shown on television and in major media and in social media. And so we really just wanted to bring things back to what we really believe are their priorities in people's lives. And more often than not, that's about family. I love it. Don't just take it from me, those listening, don't take it from just from me that it's a great book. I know you both have been featured on many things. Your book has been highlighted and featured and re most recently has been featured in the Business Insider. It rated your book book, the best overall book about investing for 2023. So that says something. I mean, I would like to think that you listening are, are taking my word overall business insider, but business insider is also important. So I just wanted to highlight that and congratulate you both, uh, Jolene and Kirsten. I really, really appreciate you both taking time to come on to the show and talk to me. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. As always, you both are such a wonderful couple. I can see why you're a couple, how you both just up level and, and challenge each other and just make things even better for the rest of us. So thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having us. Thank you're you, too sweet. My cheeks hurt. I'm smiling too much. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of this episode? If you couldn't tell by my energy and my enthusiasm, well, let me just tell you, I absolutely loved it. And I'm sure you feel the same way. Of course, this topic may cause you to reflect on your own financial situation and how comfortable you feel discussing it with your partner. I recommend using this episode as a guide. You can listen to it again. You can study it. You can write down the best takeaways or your best takeaways that you want to put into practice. And if you listen to this again, you'll probably find some other insights that you found the previous time because sometimes when we listen listen to things or read something at a later time again we are in a different spot mentally and we are able to absorb something different also ask yourself if you have been avoiding money conversations out of fear or insecurities or if you've been relying on false expectations try to create a pleasant environment from these conversations and remember that it's never too late to make these changes that will improve your quality of life and not to mention your relationship. Also, I encourage you to follow Julian and Kirsten on Instagram at Rich and Regular. I'll link that up in the show notes, but you're going to learn so much from them. They're fun to follow, they're engaging, and they're just such a wonderful couple. Now, I am a big believer that we can learn from each other. Margaret Fuller, an American journalist from the 1800s, once said, if you have knowledge, 
let others light their candles in it. After listening to Julian and Kirsten today, I am sure you probably have your own tips and tricks that have worked for you, or maybe just something that you want other people to avoid because it definitely didn't work. Share with us. We can learn from each other and see what others have shared in our private community on Facebook by clicking the link found in the episode show notes or simply go to jenhemphill.com forward slash community. Nos vemos allá, ¿cierto? We'll see you there. Next week on the podcast, we're going to meet Linda Garcia, an author, a really wonderful Latina, and we're going to learn from her how our community, our Latinx community, our Latino community, our Hispanic community can heal from the generational money ones and how to heal and so we can really build wealth because those generational money ones can prevent us from achieving wealth. So we're going to learn about that and more next week. Bueno, pues that is everything. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. You can check out the show notes over at jenhemphill.com forward slash 353. That is jenhemphill.com forward slash 353 to refer back to everything you need from the show. Remember that being the reina of your money starts now simply by claiming it. I believe in you and so should you. Nos hablaremos el próximo jueves. Chao.